Welcome to Beliefs of the Heart Weekly Reflection. I'm Sam Williamson, and today we're discussing why can't we admit hidden evils? Several months ago, a woman admitted to me some secrets about her inner life. She's beginning to acknowledge her past and present sinfulness. She admits that her thought life is more judgmental than it should be. She acknowledges that her good deeds are partly motivated by self-congratulations. She confessed that her repentance is sometimes shallow. Now, as far as I can tell, this woman is not committing adultery, robbing banks, at least not recently, nor is she kidnapping children for the sex slave industry. She doesn't smoke, drink, or dance. I don't even think she tells white lies. She claims a growing inner sense of a wickedness that lurks within, even though, and at the same time, she experiences a greater joy in her relationship with God. This wicked, joyful woman is my 94-year-old mother. Who are our real oppressors? Day after day, I hear a chorus around me from TV, movies, politicians, and pop stars, all crooning the self-serving lyrics, I'm a good person, I'm a good chap, I have a good heart. But when we read history, or just look around us today, who are the people that oppress, coerce, and tyrannize? Is it the humble or the arrogant? Is it those who claim, I deserve what I have, and probably deserve what you have too, or those who admit, I don't even deserve the little that I do have? Is it the one who proclaims, I work by the sweat of my brow, what's your problem? Or is it the one who confesses, I don't deserve a fraction of what I have, so you can have some of it as well? It is a documented fact that the poor in the world share more generously than the rich because they know that the little they have is a gift. Pop culture chants an eerie cliche. I don't care what others think of me. I only care what I think of me. There's a term for people unmoved by the opinions of others, who lack shame or guilt, who are caught up with a false sense of their own value. We call them sociopaths. And the preaching we hear hasn't helped. Many of us have been punished from the pulpit and tortured by talks of our failings. You're wicked. You have nothing to offer. You are of no value. Conviction without grace kills our hearts, and it totally ignores the creation proclamation. We are made in the image of God, and through God, we have something good to offer to the world. But another set of us have been pampered from the pulpit and therapized by talks. You are good, shame is bad, God is love, and everything is groovy. But there's no electricity. God loves me, sure. What else is new? Love without cost isn't grace. Instead, we need the paradoxical preaching that proclaims we are worse than we ever dared admit, and we are more loved than we ever dared dream. The only love that will move us is the love that costs, the love that swam the deepest ocean to restore us. The most graceful was the most convicting. Jesus described the law more strictly than anyone before him. He said we are adulterers if we simply harbor lustful thoughts. He said we are murderers if we call others a fool. How could graceful Jesus make the law so harsh and still remain so full of grace? He did it to drive us to him so that we could see our utter need of him. We need to know the evil in us and his love at the same time. It's the only path to humility without hopelessness and confidence without arrogance. 
The best significance is given, not taken. We either receive it freely from the grace of Jesus, or we just grab for it by ourselves. Last week, my wicked joyful 94-year-old mother bumped into a family friend who stocked shelves at a department store, a young woman with Asperger's. The two chatted as my mother waited in line. When it got to the head of the line, the cashier said to the young woman with Asperger's, Why are you always annoying people? Go back to your shelves. My stunned and wicked and joyful mother paused, looked at the cashier and whispered, You know, that was a cruel thing to say. The clerk grabbed for self-significance. Hey, I'm a good person. I have a good heart. I love the story of my mom. Um, it was so amazing for me to talk with her. And she just says, you know, Sam, I, I really am f- sensing my own wickedness. And of course, as her son, I'm just laughing because she's 94 years old. But she really genuinely, honestly, truly, I don't know how to say this. She had a joy because she just was delighting in a sense of God's love. And she felt the two were very connected. And I do too. A writer once that I, that I read years ago once wrote that he was fearful um, about his writing. He loved writing. He, he felt like his life was tied up in writing. In fact, he wrote, quote, the quality of my work is the measure of my life. The quality of my work is the measure of my life. But as a result, he could never be honest in looking at his own work because his ego couldn't handle it. And yet Paul keeps repeating a mantra. He says, I boast in my weakness. This writer couldn't boast in his weakness. In fact, he couldn't even admit his weakness because his life was controlled by how good his work was. Paul, on the other hand, could boast in his failings. And when Paul says his weaknesses, he says he was confessing his self-dependence, his self-reliance. He was trusting in his own heritage. He was trusting in his bigotry. He was trusting in his self-salvation. And Paul says, I'm going to boast in how bad I was because of the new thing that I have, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But I see the opposite of Paul's message everywhere. Paul says, I'm going to, I'm going to boast in my sin in a certain sense. Not that he's, he wants us to be sinful, but he's saying, I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to be completely honest about it. A woman I know claims she, she no longer sins. She has reached the point where she, she never sins. And yet... She's very anxious. She's scared to drive. She's scared to let her kids drive. She didn't even let her kids drive until they turned 21. She made her kids live at home while they were going to school, to college. She's controlling. She gossips. She judges. Yet she claims she never sins. And yet she's very unhappy. A man I know claims he's read John Eldridge. He says, I have a good heart. And yet he refuses to confess sins. He said, if you confess sins, that's just a downer. It's a depressing. He's scared to admit how much the shame in his life controls him. Now, none of us want the shame to control us, but but the way to deal with our shame, the way to deal with our insecurity, our inability to, to be honest about ourselves is, is not to cover it up with self-talk or denial of reality. Like that writer, he said he could not accept reality. So he denied the reality of his writing because the quality of his work is the measure of his life. What I love about my mom's 
discovery that she's wicked and loved is she has an honest self-appraisal, but that honest self-appraisal drove her into her greatest hope. So she let the weakness in her life drive her into the love of Jesus. She let us honest self-appraisal. She let her shame. She let her acknowledgement of her sin drive her into the love of God. And suffering always drives us into our greatest hopes. But if our hope is our self-goodness, if it's a self-good heart, if it's um, money or wealth or relationships, we're going to be driven into something that doesn't have a foundation. God is always shaking our lives so that that which cannot be shaken will survive, will endure. And God is shaking our lives right now, sometimes in the acknowledgement of our weaknesses, always in the acknowledgement of our weaknesses, so we let go of those weaknesses because they cannot hold us. They cannot give us stability. They cannot give us strength. He shakes us to drive us into our love, into his love. Tim Keller has this phrase that I love, I use all the time. I probably have used it too many times here, but Keller says, we are more loved, we are, excuse me, Keller says, we are more wicked than we ever dare admit, and we're more loved than we ever dare dream at the same time. So it's only when we see, honestly let go of our self-valuation, if we let go of the quality of my work as the measure of my life, if we can let go of that, then we can dare admit, my gosh, I really don't live up to it. I'm not as good of a parent as I think I am. I'm not as good of a boss as I think I am. I'm not as good of a husband as I think I am. I actually think bad thoughts about other people more than I want to. As we admit that, we let go of these false foundations that are shakable. And we're driven into the love of a God where he says, Sam, I love you the way I, I see you as you are. And I love you. It's only admitting the worst that we begin to taste the best. So the story of my mother, I love. I, I hope you guys love. I hope we all sort of can grow in an honest self-appraisal that says, I need a savior. I need someone greater than my weakness who will overcome my weakness and who comes and lives in me and makes me a child of God. My comment of the week has to go to Sarah Weiss. She wrote, Sam, I've been graced by his revelation to me that the people he tends to are those who are humble. To have humility today in the West is near to being impossible. Arrogance abounds and fear of looking less than others. When his disciples asked him, who are the greatest on earth? He called a child over and said to them, and to us, a good millennial or so later, Yes, I told you that unless you change, became like little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So the greatest in the kingdom is whoever makes himself as humble as this child. You know, and the thing that I liked about Sarah's comment was the reminder that in those days, children were children were not held up and revered as they are today. Today, we look at them and say, oh, the innocence of youth. Back then, they said, look at the stupidity of youth, which is probably a more honest expression. And, and yet, Jesus is saying, you got to come to me with that admittance of your foolishness of youth, where you're, you're of no value in a certain sense in your own eyes. And yet, your value is because in my eyes, you're valuable. Can, can we shift our self-value away from ourselves, Can we shift our value away from ourselves into just saying, I am valued simply because he values me. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, God says, I didn't love you because you were greater. I didn't love you because you were more powerful. I didn't love you because you were a greater nation. I loved you because I loved you. And if we can shift our foundation from some kind of self-salvation to just 
the love of God, that he just loves us. We will be humble, which means people will love to be around us, but we will also be confident and we can infect other people with that confidence, a hope in the great love of God. Thanks for listening. Please join us by following this podcast or liking it. And visit our website, beliefsoftheheart.com, for more articles, books, videos, podcasts, and courses, all designed to foster intimate theology, deepening a real relationship with the real God who is there. See you next week.